0: You are listening to the Sharp End Podcast. My name is Ashley and I'm your hostess for the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest Alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety and Alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thank you to the Colorado Bound School, Sunto, and our newest episode sponsor, Prival Concepts, for the additional support. Prival Concepts is focused on community and environmental initiatives. Prival provides USA-made equipment, apparel, and outdoor education, including avalanche, CPR first aid training, land navigation, and rock rescue courses. Visit PrivalUSA.com for more information. We partnered up with Prival to give away a four-day rock rescue course to a Lucky Sharpen listener. And congratulations to Ross Congo! You won the rock rescue course, good for one year in Salt Lake City, Utah. The next course is November 7th through the 10th, so please let Tony at Prival know if you could make it. Okay, picture this. You're out climbing. It's the weekend. It's sunny and warm, and you're surrounded by some of your best climbing partners. It's nearing midday at this point, and you've got about 3 climbs already in the bag. You're about to tie into the rope, and all of a sudden, you hear a scream, and then someone falls. You just witnessed an accident happen right next to you at the crag. It was it was shocking. They end up being okay, but it could have been bad. It could have been really, really bad. But it wasn't you or your partner, so you keep climbing. The next day rolls around, and honestly, you don't really want to climb. That image keeps popping up in your head, the image from yesterday at the crag. The woman I get to chat with on this episode has over 20 years in emergency medicine and eight years studying this very topic. Her name is Laura McGladry. The topic is stress injuries, and I am very happy to welcome Laura to the show. So, thanks again, Laura, for being on the show. And why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: So Laura Mcladry calling from outside of Boulder, Colorado today. I'm a, a nurse practitioner. My background actually is in emergency medicine and humanitarian aid and wilderness medicine and and, um, and I, I've been teaching wilderness medicine for lots and lots of years um, with the National Outdoor Leadership School now Knowles Wilderness Medicine. And um, I, I could probably tell you a little bit how I got interested in this topic. Um, by way of that journey, I would say, um, I was many years ago living in the sleepy little town of Buena Vista, Colorado.
0: Oh, I love Buena Vista.
1: (laughs) We all love Buena Vista. Um, right. So I was, um, I had, you know, all but dropped out of nursing school (laughs) and pursued my dreams of being a raft guide and a, and a mountaineering guide. And, I was volunteering with ski patrol and working at the hospital up there to fund my habit. And um, and I, I took a wilderness medicine class and I was like, okay, this is actually what I want to do for the rest of my life. So um, as many of us nurses do, I then um, sort of used wilderness medicine and nursing to fuel my outdoor habits for a lot of years. And, um, and that led me on a journey of um, teaching internationally. I taught in the Spanish program for a long time. Uh, with Knowles in Patagonia and Ecuador and kind of all over. And and that journey got me into humanitarian aid and uh, working sort of in the more remote places. Um, But some years ago, um, when I returned from doing humanitarian aid, I'd had a pretty rough uh, go of it the year that I returned. I'd been in South Sudan for a year and had seen a lot and had been sick myself and came home. And I, I noticed this really interesting phenomenon where I just actually never wanted to leave the country again. Um, I didn't want to work with kids anymore. I'd been running a, um, a feeding program and, and working with kids in a pretty remote context and saw so a lot of them die, a lot of sick kids. And I just had this real curiosity about how I finally had climbed the ladder of everything I thought I wanted to do in nursing and humanitarian aid and wilderness. And then I, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I got, I just got real curious and followed that curiosity um, back to graduate school and psych, mental health, nursing. So, um, so that was kind of another whole career. And so what I do now, I work in the emergency department at the university and I do a lot of work around, um, trauma and stress injury formation across the lifespan. And, and as it happens, if you're the only person who speaks wilderness or one of the only, and and trauma and psychiatry and this big mix and meld, then, um, I have the opportunity to, to speak on this stuff a lot. So,
0: um, yes, I actually got to hear you do, uh, well, you did a training for the hour bound school for, um, staff and trainers in Colorado that I attended in May um, of this year, which was really amazing. And I thought very valuable. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Thanks. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of, um, we'll talk about this a little
1: bit in the national context. I think a lot of our organizations, Knowles and Outward Bound and, um, a lot of search and rescue and ski patrol. I volunteer with ski patrol here in Colorado as an advanced life support, um, provider. You know, I think what we're starting to see is it's, I work with first responders in the front range, fire and EMS and, um, and law enforcement. And that's who I've seen for a long time in private practice and have seen a pretty particular um, pattern of injury formation. But I think what, who, what gets left out of the conversation of those of us who rescue or recreate um, in fun and sometimes difficult places. And, and so it's been really interesting. And I think we talked about that this summer, seeing this um, injury type played out in the outdoor in the outdoor realms.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so you know you know a little bit about uh, you know, m- my listener type and how they're avid skiers, backcountry users, climbers, mountaineers, alpinists of sorts. And yes. um my we people. talked about yeah, your people, your tribe, our tribe. Um yes. and you approached me about doing this episode because you thought it'd be really valuable for that type of listener. Um so I'm really excited to meld your profession, your passion um, with their hobbies.
1: Thanks. I know I, I, it's been true that um, as I get to speak in different areas, um, my friends who do this amazing work, I have friends who just put out um, a book on climbing injuries who will know who they are as they listen, who I, I'm sort of always the thorn in the side saying, hey, why, why are we talking about stress injury formation? This is a new type of climbing injury. This is, a, this is a new type of avalanche injury. Not new by any means, but one that we're finally recognizing that's keeping people from doing what they love, and and sometimes can be, caused for a slow recovery or no recovery. Why aren't we talking about these injuries too? So, um, so I uh, my friends will often sort of like, here comes Mcgladry. She's I know what she's gonna say. <laughs> I know <laughs> what she's gonna say. Yeah, and I will say too that doing emergency medicine for so long, and then I I still teach wilderness medicine, and and we talk about humanitarian deployment. I work in disaster as well and ski patrol. I mean, gosh, you'll, once you, you don't see what you're not looking for, but once you start looking for this injury type and how it plays out, it really is all around us. And it's really keeping some amazing um, warriors and humanitarians from living the life that they fully love. So I think that's one of these, for me, it's, it's hard to, to see it. Um, this injury type, for lack of the better word, gets relegated to folks' personalities, right? So people um, who've had significant injuries who start to withdraw or disappear or life doesn't feel good or the same for them anymore, understandably start um, withdrawing and their friends will say um, that – that, I mean, I hope I can say this on the podcast, but, um, that person just became sort of an asshole hmm. or that person, right. That person, like we used to love hanging out with him or maybe it's me, right. I used to be awesome and now I'm just kind of an asshole. And I think if I could go around the country, um, talking to my people that I love every time they said I, that guys or that gal or my climbing partner just kind of turned into an asshole and disappeared, I'd say if we could replace that with stress injury, I think we'd start getting to the bottom of what's really going on. So, Mm -hmm. so, so you may not want me in your backcountry cave (laughs) because we might end end
0: up talking about this. Well, so what, what is it exactly?
1: So, so stress injuries really, when we talk about stress injuries, this is the terminology that the military and the WHO and and what's being used in humanitarian aid. And that's why I've taken to talk about this as an injury type Uh, not so much um, PTSD anymore, although this is among the realms. But what you'll find out is um, post-traumatic stress disorder, although very real, is actually really only one part of an injury type, right? That's a late changing sign of an injury type that maybe the early changing signs might be things like lack of motivation. I just don't want to go out on the rock anymore. I don't feel like going outside as much as I used to. This isn't fun for me anymore, or I'm afraid all the time. I mean, those would be early changing vital signs of an injury formation. Um, in my private practice, I certainly see folks who are to the point where they are what we would consider post traumatic stress disorder. They're not sleeping, maybe they're numbing um, their lives in a whole bunch of different ways, they're isolated, they're depressed. Is um, So that is a late changing sign. But honestly, when you get into stress injury formation and how we develop these injury types, and hopefully we could talk about that a little bit, I mean, this is the most adaptive survival mechanism of our lives. So I'm not sure post-traumatic stress disorder is really appropriate at all. If I see my climbing partner fall 60 feet and have a significant injury and I'm connected to that person and I felt helpless when it happened... Um, my brain codes that is happening to me what happens next for me where I don't I start to put on my climbing harness and I get that feeling again I go I don't want to do that anymore I'm going to take up mountain biking that is not a disorder and so I so anyway I that's why I've taken the call on the stress injury formation and I, I hope we can move this in the national conversation and I think um, one thing that's really adaptive about calling these stress injury formation, which, again, the military did it first, but this is how we talk about it in first responder population, is this truly is an injury type. Um, I work with Knowles and I get to advise the curriculum, and we've just recently um, moved this out of the mental health section, the illness section, right? So we teach many people listening will have been um subject to a wilderness first responder at some point in their careers, right? So we I hope so. I hope so. And if you (laughs) haven't, you probably should. But um for many years now, as we've been starting to talk about this topic, right, we we, what will happen if you're in a, in a wilderness first responder course of any type, anyone who teaches these, you'll probably talk about head injuries and spine injuries and chest injuries. And then eventually you get into day seven or eight and you'll start talking about illnesses like diabetes and stomach issues. And, and so that's where we've been talking about psychological first aid and stress injuries. But, but just this year we've moved in our curriculum to actually putting it in the same section as a head injury, as a spinal cord cord injury, as a um, chest injury, because frankly, this is an exposure injury type and anyone with enough exposure, even the strongest among us will eventually be affected by that exposure type. So anyone can get injured um, if, with enough exposure um, to something significant that happens to ourselves or someone else we care about. And so um, that's really what we're referring to. In stress injury formation, I, I think a great example of this to me, anyway. I was talking to my friend Dave Weber, who I think you know. Um, yeah, he a, actually
0: we actually did an episode with Dave Weber, uh, my second or third f- ever episode. <laughs> oh, terrific! So he's a dear friend of mine. We used to work in
1: Patagonia years ago, and I got to see him. I was teaching at Denali yeah. um, up at Denali this year, and I got to see him, which was so great. And he was sharing with me about just we were just kind of talking wilderness medicine about this um, uh, issue that came up right I guess an exposure type that happened on the mountain um, early in June this year I'm not sure if you heard about it but they had it they were socked in by a storm as happens everyone was in their tents Um, two of the climbers experienced climbers weren't feeling well and one of them stumbled out to get some air and maybe some help and came across other rescuers. And by the time they got um, back in the tent and found his climbing partner, his climbing partner was seizing and they recognized whatever was hurting them was hurting both of them. And they appropriately recognize they were cooking in their tents. They were socked in. This is, we probably know what this is, right? This mm. is odorless, colorless gas. Now, the thing that stood up to me, stood out to me that that Dave was sharing with me, he was reflecting on, as a rescuer, how subtle the symptoms were and how easily ignored they could be, right? You could say, wow, this is just altitude. Oh, I'm sleepy. Right. I'm tired and sleep is off. Right. Mm -hmm. And the symptoms were shared, there was no early warning mechanism. Right, and he basically said, "Listen, if you're waiting for cherry red lips, you're going to go fine. you're going to do a recovery in there. You can't. This, you got to know that this is a possibility." And that really stood out to me because if we weren't aware that carbon monoxide could injure people at altitude, the way that that rescue might have gone down is that they might have gone back in the tents, treated them, hydrated them, and. Just, you know, let's see how they do in the morning. And we know how that story would have ended. Right. But the fact that this was a known exposure type, that the thing that they were exposed to was not always evident and everyone knew about it so is what saved their lives. And and that story just really stood out to me. Of course, like I said, I, I went to the stress injury formation and especially in the remote context, right, in climbing and expedition medicine. You know, if you didn't know that exposure, traumatic stress, seeing people you care about getting injured and even near miss stress, that, that you almost had something really significant happen to you and your brain coded it like it did. And that's exposure. If we didn't know that that exposure over time could actually injure us in some ways, potentially, then we wouldn't look for it. And if, and you won't see what you're not looking for. And so, I think in this conversation on stress injury formation, one of the most important things we do is just recognize that when you go through significant events, and this is so true in rescue, if you're search and rescue, even if you're ski patrol, that those tree strikes, those strange body recoveries, the one that was a little bit off for us, the, the exposure to the family and their grief, the watching this go down. Right, watching your climbing partners get injured and sometimes die, that that these are exposures to us mm-hmm. that need care. They need to be cared for. And if we don't, we actually start to see a somewhat predictable pattern of, of injury formation. And like I said, I mean, I think having done this work for a while, I could say it starts out like, um, let's say you're part of a high angle search and rescue team. You would do this, and most of us do, as a volunteer for your whole life because it was so great to go out with your team and save people off the side of mountains. You'd hang up whatever, you would do what it takes, and you couldn't get enough of it, right? The pager goes off, you're out there again, you love this. And then one day, the pager goes off, and this little thing in you goes, I don't want to do this. I don't think I want to go today. I don't feel like it. That change often is the early change in stress injury formation, right? And then it becomes um, there are certain rescues I don't want to go on anymore. It's not uncommon for patrollers to say, you know, I get the call on the radio. It's a Peds call. I'm out of there. I don't want to do it, right? I don't do rescues at night anymore. I don't like the I don't I don't like the way it feels. I don't do big walls anymore. I don't do. And then pretty soon that becomes I don't. XYZ anymore, right? I don't want to travel internationally and do this. I don't want to do this, et cetera. And so as these injuries form, what we see is that um, less and less of life is available to you. And and again, this is so adaptive because what happened inside your, your brain was that you have this great mechanism usually for overcoming stress, right? We overcome it, we fight it, we get through it, we're on to the next thing. We don't even think about it. But in the moment that this became more than we could respond to ourselves, our own survival mechanism got overwhelmed or we felt helpless or out of control, right? We see this in the rescuers a lot, or it happened to someone that we didn't even have to be on scene. If it was your climbing partner and you heard all the details that is going to feel like in your brain, like it happened to you. Yeah. Right. And so when we see this get played out in the, as it goes on and on, things just, life doesn't feel fun. The color drains out. You can still go through the motions. Now you're slogging your way through it. And a lot and things bother you in ways that kind of, I I think in the end we end up with a pretty big shame wall there because I used to love this and my friends still love this and I don't. So I'm going to pretend for as long as I can and then I'm gonna drift away. And the farther into the stress injury we get, the more the details, the things come back to us, the things we can't escape, and more and more of our life goes to trying to avoid that feeling. And that might be what what you'll see, I often will see played out with in the climbing world, the mountaineering world, is um, that you don't take the next contract for the job. You, don't, you break up with that person who reminds you of what you used to do together. Uh, You look for adaptive ways um, to get out of it, or you do more and more numbing, and that can look like a ton of different things. It's not always alcohol. It's not always weed. It's not always, sometimes it's busyness. Sometimes it's, my work's too busy. I can't get out there on the rock. Um, But life gets more and more narrow and less and less fun and almost guaranteed there's less and less connection to yourself and the people that you love as the injury progresses.
0: Hmm. um I'm just sort of putting myself in checking all those boxes for myself, and it's uh, pretty eye opening that potentially I have some stress injuries
1: right. Well, I already showed you my cards <laughs> why I got into this. I mean, I think a lot of us are highly functional humans, we keep adapting and overcoming, but um Again, I think this is why it's such an important message. Like, we're not going to see what we're not looking for. So we're going to start making up reasons for the things that we do or not do anymore. Right. I, I so many times in the outdoor field, Right. You just end up like, I'm going to switch from the mountain section to the river section. I'm going to take up mountain biking because I'm not going to at least at least I won't drown or at least that won't happen to me. And, um, yeah, I think it's a pretty shared experience. I mean, I think if we look at it from a different angle, we, we chose all of us to go out there and live life to the fullest. And we had a lot of moments probably where our brain says, Whoa, that was way too close. And the survival mechanism kicked in and the, the farther out there you get, the more people that you love that you lose who feel like you and I think it would be uncommon for this not to happen to you and not to happen to me because of the the full lives we're living. Mm
0: -hmm. So how so how do we I mean, I don't know. Can can we fix it? Is it something how do we see this in ourselves um, other than listening to this podcast and saying, oh, check, 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 check. Like what can be done at this point?
1: Right. Well, you know, again, I think that the really the crux move here, first of all, is just recognition. Um, Maybe I'm not an asshole or maybe I am, but maybe I'm not only that. (laughs) Right. Or maybe it's not just because of my personality that I'm so cranky or that life is so hard or that I've lost my motivation or maybe it's not something that I've done wrong. And, and you know, it's so frequently I'll have a firefighter say to me, you know, it's just, it feels so good to find out what this is. It's like finding out that the reason that my toes were going numb and I'm thirsty all the time and I have to pee all the time and I'm always so tired is that I have this thing called diabetes. Cause now, now we can do something about it. It's not just me. And this is, this is not moving only in one direction. So I think we can talk a little bit about psychological first aid. I think it's also to, you know, it's important to know a couple things about stress injuries. Um, They occur on this continuum, right, where they form and develop and maybe move toward things like PTSD. But it's not a terminal direction. They're, They're dynamic. They're reversible. And I think we know people. We've seen people who are late in their careers in search and rescue and are vibrant, are climbers who've lost people they love, but they're still vital and alive and living this life well. And so we've got evidence that these can move in both directions once they're recognized. Mm-hmm. I think it's really fair also to know that stress injuries are physical injuries. They have been relegated to the realms of the psychological but when, you, when your body is telling you all the time that you're trying to survive, you're secreting cortisol, right? So that's where we actually start to see injuries that are pretty much like taking prednisone every day, where we see pathological fractures and insomnia and type 2 diabetes and physical injuries that go with this. So I think that recognizing this is really important too, because some people with stress injury formation will have physical injuries they can't explain. And it's really helpful to also know that um, you're not quote unquote crazy. Your body's responding appropriately to how much you're trying to survive all the time. Again, it's funny when I went from being like a family nurse practitioner to a psychological psychiatric nurse practitioner, everyone wanted me to just talk about the brain and trauma and stress. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Everyone's living this though in their bodies. We're going to see it in the bodies. In the physical, in the fatigue, in the the way that this plays out in our stress injury patterns physically. So I think for for climbers and mountaineers for whom this can be a real struggle, it's important to know that your body is holding on to those memories too. It's not it's not all in your head at all. It's in your body. When when these accidents go down again, not infrequently that. Um, as I work with search and rescues that I'll see folks who after the facts will come up and say, you know, I'm fine, but my climbing partner was really injured and has been just you know, coming out of this long-term rehabilitation and the fractures are healing. Sometimes we'll find that the injured climbers, like physically injured climbers are out much sooner living more full experiences because attention was paid to their injuries. So while the one who was with them says, you know, sort of off the cuff, like, and I haven't been out on the rock yet. I just can't. And I think first of all, what you're doing is identifying that whoever was in the end of that rope probably got injured but so did the belayer. Right. And let's and the same happens on the big slide of the avalanche. Yes, the person in the avalanche was injured, but so is the person who saw that happen and had to dig. That that this injury type needs care, even if there are no physical injuries, is so important. And then you know I think so psychological first aid really came um, in the middle 2000s after we'd been doing critical incident stress. Um, support for some time with some varied response, right? Some people have amazing experiences with critical instance stress debriefing, but a lot of folks candidly didn't. So the world's experts got together basically and said, did a global literature search. This was probably more focused in the beginning on disaster populations, but said, hey, what are things that we know could actually mitigate a stress injury as it's happening? So that the brain who knows it's now only job is to survive can kind of stand down. And so these interventions are really aimed at a time when the brain is overwhelmed in survival mode. And um, what we're hoping to do is fire off that all clear signal that says, hey, you survived. You made it. The threat's over. The worst is over. Right, So that the brain doesn't have to keep tracking for the rest of its life. Survival, every time I smell that smell again, every time I go out into the pine and the snow, I feel like it's happening again. If we can support the brain and reestablishing safety and getting out of that state of hyperarousal, And so the, the tools are pretty simple. There's five that we often will, will teach in the wilderness and austere medicine realms and I think are appropriate for climbing and mountaineering right after an incident has occurred so the first one is safety the second one is calming the third one is re-establishing efficacy to combat helplessness and then re-establishing a connection either on scene or with people they love and then finally keeping hope alive even in the midst of really difficult situations and And that one, we can talk just very briefly about each, but keeping hope alive really combats the change in our worldview. So when we've seen something overwhelming in a place that we love, right? If you rescue on a mountain where you climb, you know this feeling. I've seen really bad things happen to people on the same rock I'm going out to climb on tomorrow. And for some people, you'll be a part of a rescue, and the next day the rock doesn't look the same to you. It doesn't feel safe anymore. You're looking at a different world, a different rock, and so sometimes just re-establishing hope, right? Which would be as simple as, I know it's raining. I know no one knows where we are. I didn't. I know we didn't plan on this happening, and I know both of your legs are broken. And you stuck with me. I've been doing. Like, this might be an example of hope, right? Um, my partner will be looking for me in 10 minutes. I've got a lot of dark chocolate with me and I've been doing this for 20 years, right? Rescuing people on the side of mountains and we're in this together. So we got that going for us, right? Mm -hmm. That might be a way that you offer hope. We got this. I know this is terrible and it's really scary, but we got this, right? That's hope giving. So the other ones, reestablishing safety, we can simply do by, you know, at that point, the brain is not coding for a lot of information. You're in limbic overdrive, you're in survival mode. Folks are just listening for did I survive or not. So in our language, we can use words like now that you're safe, now that you're off the side of that slope, we can do tangible things like maybe turning someone around so they're not watching the events continue on and they're focusing on us. In a rescue context, in a remote context, it might be as simple as taking off their climbing gear with the blood on it and putting on something else so the brain isn't constantly reminded this is happening over and over. And then we protect them from misinformation too, right? Because our brain can always come up with things that are worse than what, we come, that, what really happened. So sometimes um, giving a quick press release on the actual facts... Right. You might hear someone say something like, yep, that's Johnny. And he's screaming. Yep. That's him. (laughs) Is that Johnny? Is he screaming? Yes. But listen to that airway. He's got this robust airway. I know (laughs) his leg is broken, but he's listen to him. That's him. Right. And so that might reestablish safety by actually giving the facts. That's Johnny. He's got a broken leg, but isn't he (laughs) doing listen to that guy scream. So I know he's got a great airway and that actually encourages me. Right. So. That might reestablish safety. I think where the crux move is that can be so hard for all of us is that this calming, right? If we're rescuing or we're coming on scene, you're coming back to your, friend. you just saw this go down with your friend belaying. The first and most important thing we can do is actually calm ourselves down a little bit, get a handle on what we're bringing to the situation. Take and then length. Yeah. Hold it for four. I mean, even if you just realize I'm freaking out right now. Right. And you just said, I got to just take a sec before I go over there because that was crazy. And I'm scared, too. But you let's say you take a deep breath. You hold it for four. You breathe it out. You tell yourself and they still need me to be calm and help them sort this out. You go over there and you tell them, right, this is calming and safety. Now that your partner's on the ground and someone's taking care of them and they're safe, let's take care of you. For just a minute, right? And in that moment, your calm words are actually lending them your nervous system. And that reading the nervous system, man, that was the first language we ever learned to speak. It's more powerful than the words that come out of our mouths. So if we can communicate to them, you made it through our calm, that's what actually reestablishes safety for them and tells them they survived because they're looking in our eyes and they can tell things are going to be okay. I'll just tell you these last few um because I think they're pretty self-explanatory but we forget to do them sometimes and I'm really proud of the rescues I work with, um, really closely. Um, Portland mountain rescue is one that I work with closely and they've really taken this to heart this year and have shared lots of stories of how they implement this. It's just so great. You know, in a search and rescue context or a mountain rescue, we might come on scene and we're so used to being the rescuers that we start doing everything for everyone. Right. And so what that doesn't do for a person who is just seen something overwhelming that that person who just um saw someone go off who belayed them you know in a way that they're now thinking i've done this what they don't need is for us to do more for them the brain who feels survival brain feels helpless the survival brain needs to know if this ever happens again i can get myself out of this so we want to do the opposite which is actually involve them in their own rescue and keep handing the keys back to them,
0: mm-hmm. right? It
1: gives them so power. It makes them feel power. More yeah, mm-hmm. right. And and actually, they can play out their own rescue, so they don't have to spend the rest of their life looking for a way to survive. So, as counterintuitive as it might be to to have that blair help support their friend. It might be the most, the climbing partner might be the most powerful thing, but you are not disqualified because you've been injured or th- because this happened. We need your help. Your partner needs your help. And it might be as simple as we need details about the scene. We need more information about them. We need you to, I mean, if they're physically injured, it's just the two of you, right? Can you hold your own C-spine here for a minute? Will you, My favorite trick candidly as a rescuer is to say, I don't have a watch on, which of course I never do. Can you count to 15 while I take this, po- your pulse? Great. Now can you times it by four? Great. Now, can you remember that for me? Cause I don't have a pen either. Right. And so <laughs> they're involved in their own rescue. So anything we can do, To get people back in the game as rescuers, as mountaineers early on, even though it feels like, oh, it couldn't bear to ask them. They've been through too much. It's exactly what we need to do, right? This is where we're changing culture in search and rescue, where we might say to that parent who knows you're doing a body recovery of their child, hey, do you want to help us carry your son's body? Because that is the last and greatest sort of offering to your child. So get in here. We want you here. You need to be a part of this. And it turns out it protects us too. Wow.
0: I I didn't realize that that was happening, but that sounds, it, it makes sense. And that sounds very powerful and gives them, you know, ownership and sort of this closure and this.
1: Yeah. We, we think that if we don't, participate or we don't get in and get anyone in on that, then they're, they we're protecting them. But the opposite is usually true. I mean, we might be protecting ourselves from seeing their grief, but this efficacy or effective action and getting involved in the rescue can be very powerful. Even if it's a recovery, that was someone that they loved. They were involved already. Let's get back in the action. So our brain knows that we can take care of this in the future.
0: And that's sort of the the first step to uh, to recovery.
1: It can be. and And of course, there are times when it's just too much, and that's understandable, but but let's not keep it out when it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. finally, i I didn't mention I will just quickly that connection is very powerful, right? So even using people's names frequently in the beginning right? That I would use your name three or four or five times, or that I would make an actual on-scene connection with you. Um, Because what tells us we're safe is being with and connecting with the people who love us. And so when we can, now we might consider a sat phone call. We might connect people to their loved ones or their pets, or we might be those people that we're really bearing witness. Like, I know, I know you just met me, but I'm totally present to you and I'm not leaving you. So that's not nothing, right? We got each other and we're, that connection also in that moment, um, helps people to find their way back home so they don't have to create stress injuries right after, um, the events, right? Because they know that they're connected. They're not overwhelmed anymore. They're not isolated anymore. And their brains now learning that they can be a part of the recovery, the rescue, the help. They don't have to just wait. Do Those powerful stuff.
0: Do stress injuries? Are they often? Um, do they often occur immediately after um, an accident or an incident, or can they sometimes surface six months, a year later, down the road? Right. I mean, the whole gamut, this is our,
1: this is our survival mechanism, right? So whatever works for our survival works. So some, so sometimes when we're in those moments of overwhelm with so many images, our brain, this all happens subcortically, which means kind of below the waterline where all these images live and hang out. So for some people, um, I'll give you an example. It's not uncommon for rescuers to do multiple recoveries. Um, involving kids and be fine for 10 or 12 years, right? These are stress injuries are um, late changing injuries with often physical outcomes, right? So you might go years and years taking in all these images, losing people, climbing the high mountains, doing the big stuff, and then something in your life changes, right? So for those rescuers, I often hear that it's when people have children of their own. That all of these images really start to affect them. Um, sometimes you will be amazed to watch people go on for years and years before something very, what may even seem insignificant from the outside that the brain connects with, like that with like me, happens. And there's a sort of culmination. So stress injuries can be single event injuries, or literally they can be over the arc of an entire. Climbing or rescue career, just one after another after another. And so they can be very cumulative and very subtle. And that's why sometimes we don't even see them expressed until retirement when folks have made it across the finish line, but now they don't want to go out. They want to move to a cabin in the middle of nowhere. They don't want to see friends. They don't want to climb anymore. They don't feel like themselves anymore. And that's why we have to pay attention to these early changing signs. And I guess getting back to your point about what we do, I would say one of the things that really helps is to have an early warning system, right? That's our friends where we say, hey, I know this injury type exists and I know this exposure is affecting me and I know I may not feel it myself. You might see it first. So, when you notice me not wanting to do this anymore, or getting cranky, or having to criticize after every call, or having to, I'm just not myself, whatever these subtle changes are, I'm drinking a lot, I'm numbing a lot, I'm withdrawing a lot, I'm just not myself. That's where, kind of like the blister in the hot spot, right? If you can stop and pay attention to it there and care for that exposure, then integrate it in real time then you keep going living a full and vibrant life so i think one of the things that really helps is just a knowing it exists and then being having a culture around you of people who are watching themselves but they're watching you too it's like carbon monoxide right you you might not recognize first what's happening hey you look pale you don't seem like yourself you're nauseous do you think this could be happening to you
0: recognition well prevention <laughs> recognition um and then um support it sounds like right i mean i think
1: there's a continuum there of the things that you can do for yourself and then um you know we use a stress continuum that the military uses right it goes from green you're doing great to yellow boy you've had a change orange is you're injured you've sustained an injury And now you're having whatever it is, trouble focusing, you're into substance issues or relationship issues or depression, anxiety, whatever it is, motivational issues, exhaustion. And then red is you're ill. And the farther you get into that continuum, like any other injury type, right, if it's type 2 diabetes, maybe early on, you can change your diet and exercise. But by the time your pancreas isn't making insulin anymore, you need support. You need that to come from somewhere else. And so when you get into orange, like I'm injured or red, this is an injury and I can't live my life the way that I know I want to or should. That's when it's time to get help from the outside. And that's where I, you know, in the outdoor industry, I'm really applauding some of these newer efforts. I know the American Alpine Club, I've been working with them. I love what they're doing to try and make a national network of support of therapists who understand trauma, who speak climber. So we're trying to find those people too. So it's it's hard enough to go to um, to pick up the phone. They call it the thousand pound phone, right? To call for therapeutic support you get there and that folks don't understand that what you're experiencing is an injury, that makes it really hard. Mm-hmm. So I think those networks are tremendously helpful. And then I think finally, Knowing that wherever you are on that continuum, the more effort we make toward green, right, the more we're sleeping, the more we're in, you know, we do a lot of the stuff anyway, right? But we're trying to integrate the stuff in real time. There's space for integration. There's flexibility. Wherever the stress hits you on that continuum is how injured you're going to become. And so the more that we can just collectively be in contact with ourselves and know when we're hurting and have a low tolerance for for pain emotional pain the more i think we're going to be caring for those things in real time
0: again that was laura mcgladry and if you were moved by this mission please get in touch with her at www.responderalliance.com stress injuries are much more common than anybody may think especially surrounding a community of avid outdoor people like us and a woman named madeline Sorkin agrees Madeline is a longtime climber who I approached recently after learning about a project that she's spearheading and which Laura just mentioned in our interview, and it's called the Climbing Grief Fund. The Climbing Grief Fund is for anyone dealing with loss or trauma related to climbing. At the AAC, we are setting up free mental health services for individuals. The aim with this program is to create a nationwide network of mental health services for individuals and, moreover, to better integrate grief into our community and culture. If you or someone you know is an interested mental health practitioner, please be in touch with myself or Vicki Hormuth at the AAC. And please keep tabs on this program in 2019. We will have a... Present at the cragging classics and we'll be ready for more people to get involved in other ways for more information email info at Club.org. thank you so much to laura Mcgladry, madeline sorkin and all of you listeners thanks to the sponsors for making this happen Mammut. The Colorado Hourbound School, Sunto and Private Concepts. The Colorado Band School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus, and include everything from backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit cobs.org to plan your next adventure. For over 80 years, Sunto has developed the tools to help mountain athletes safely navigate new territory and train for major expeditions. From high performance compasses to state of the art GPS and altimeter watches, Sunto devices are chosen by leading alpinists worldwide for their durability, accuracy, and ease of use. Sunto watches are handcrafted in Finland, and the word Sunto comes from the Finnish word meaning direction. Learn more at Sunto.com. And remember play hard and be smart.